Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina, Tim, how's it going? Welcome back. It's going good. Thanks, David, for the welcome back salutations. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, when you said it, I got confused. I was like, have we been gone? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know, a week? <laughs> a week? I don't feel like showing up at the same time every week constitutes welcome back. But I don't... <laughs> All right, fine. Thanks for showing up where you're supposed to be. <laughs> I won't be grateful then. Uh, you can be grateful. You can be grateful. I'm sure our listeners are grateful that you showed up because let me tell you, an hour and 15 minutes of me just sitting here talking by myself about this book would not be that interesting. That's certainly not as interesting as you guys. It could be. Uh, maybe. Maybe. I it might. We might end up far afield. Let's just put it that way. So that we are here. Be true if any of us talk for an hour and 15 minutes by ourselves. Let's, I sure wonder. Let's be honest. It's far afield when the three of us are talking about it together. So... But hopefully it's interesting a field. <laughs> True. So we are here to, to finish talking about, well, I guess not technically finish talking about, but to finish uh, talking about the reading for Howard's End. We're going to talk about the last several chapters, the last portion of this book, um, and the conclusion of the story. Uh, before we do that, though, I'm going to say a quick word from our sponsors at the Honors College of Belmont Abbey. Thanks to them for sponsoring once again. If you are looking for a place to join a group of morally and intellectually serious young men and women who are seeking wisdom through the Great Books curriculum, then the Honors College of Belmont Abbey is perfect for you. Um, of course, this is also true if you have a student who is looking for such a community. With a number of flexible options, the Honors College allows you to take any major offer to Belmont Abbey College while exploring the greatest works by the most brilliant philosophers, poets, theologians, and historians in the Western tradition. Our distinctive, well, their distinctive approach affords you the opportunity to participate in the highest form of friendship, a shared life dedicated to the pursuit of wisdom. Head over to www.bac.edu slash honors for more information. That's www.bac.edu slash honors. A life well-lived awaits you at the Honors College at Belmont Abbey. So again, thanks to them for sponsoring. Go check, go check them out. Head over to that URL. Check out some of the things that they're offering there. Check out the campus. Take a visit. It's a really beautiful campus uh, um, with a beautiful monastery on site. Um, and you might run into uh, Angelina's son, you know, while you're doing That's so. Right. If you're taking a or tour, me. He, yeah, was, you, might, yeah. you might run into Angelina. <laughs> he, he gave me a tour on Sunday, and, and I'm going. And he asked me to come um, and see a play that they're putting on Friday night. So, oh, nice. Yeah, they got a lot of nice things going on over there. Yeah, I've known a lot of my cousin Alex who works for us. She goes there. Mm -hmm. um, lots of friends of ours have, have gone there. So if you are in the Southeast or are okay with being out of state for college, then definitely check that out. It's a cool program. Good people, good place, good barbecue nearby. Uh, and Angelina, <laughs> Angelina's not too far away either if you're, you know, want to take a little road trip. Okay, let's talk. Right. Let's talk about Howard's End. We're done. 
Oh, can I just say I was cheering so loud at the end of this book and going, it's about time. What? <laughs> Which, I feel very affirmed in how upset I was with her earlier because clearly she needed to be slapped. <laughs> okay. Well, hold that thought. Um, I want to come back <laughs> to that. Uh, Tim, you, you Facebook messaged us. I think we can just call it message. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read it word for word here because I can't remember it and it's better if I do it this way. You said, wow. What a book. Really, really satisfying. To which I responded, yes. I'm running late. Give me a minute. Um, <laughs> I'm so glad that's the message you wrote and not the other one that he sent, which was like, guys, I'm so hungover. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that I wrote? Which of us? Which of us are you accusing of writing that? No, Tim. You know, Tim oh, sent oh. his early morning, guys, I'm so hungover text. That's a joke, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tim. If Tim is hungover, he keeps it to himself. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Well, we are already far afield. Um, Tim, so you said it's really, really satisfying. And I, you know, you had some reservations about this book. Um, you, it seemed to grow on you as we went. Uh, went yeah. along. But I'm curious if you could explore a little bit more about why you didn't, you didn't say it's a good book. And that's kind of implied. You didn't say it's well written. You didn't say, you know, you weren't, you're, the specificity that you said it was, it was satisfying. What, yeah. Why was this book satisfying? How did it meet that particular drive, desire well, for satisfying? I, boy, there's so many different ways. There's so many different threads that all pulled together in the story that I thought just was just going to remain um, threadbare. Is not the word like this kind of like untangled heap of threads. It, it, it just all came together. Even Mr. Wilcox, I've never expected. That was a, I almost gasped when, oh gosh. Well, we're just going to ruin, we're just going to ruin it. If you were listening, we're just going to ruin it. Well, um, that's expected. Don't, this don't is listen now if you haven't already read, because we're going to spoil the end of the book. Yeah. When Charles uh, is, when they are going to go after him for manslaughter and Mr. Wilcox gets broken... I think those were his words. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it. I seriously just thought, oh my goodness, this is the thing that we never thought would happen. I, I just thought he was um, such an obstinate character, such mm -hmm. a um, willful or he, he almost just had kind of like a predestined sense about him. He was not going to ever change, but he did change because of very terrible circumstances associated with his son. His son basically um, inadvertently kills a character. Are we just going to roll out with it? I feel like I'm just gobbling up no, all of the spoilers. No, because yeah. the, the assumption here is you've read the chapters already. Yeah. Otherwise, he, it won't work. He accidentally kills Leonard Bast in a, you know, bit of gentlemanly rage for a woman that he doesn't really care anything about, Helen, um, smacks him around with the broad end of a sword. And it appears that Leonard dies of heart disease, but um, he goes to jail, this Charles for manslaughter, and this breaks Mr. Wilcox. That was one of many satisfying things about the conclusion of the book. There are many, many more, but that one was the one that was least expected by me. I hope we come back to this idea, too, about exactly what it is that breaks Mr. Wilcox. I mean, I presume we are. I don't want to jump on Tim's let's, comments here. But. Let's, um, I, th I think that 
of all the things that I think are worth unpacking, I think that's pretty high on the list. So let's jump there right now. I have no problem with going right to that. So go go ahead, Angela. You you seem like you have something very specific you want to say. So I'm not even going to ask a question. I'm just going to see the floor. <laughs> well, I do. But first, I want to you know I want to affirm what Tim said too that uh, you know I also, as you know, did not have high hopes for Mr. Wilcox, and I, I kind of think that's the point. Um, and and so as the reader when you're talking about it as a work of art, you know, a couple of different things can happen when you have a character who you absolutely believe is not going to change. And then the writer makes them change. You have to ask the question of, you know, is this believable? Would this character have changed? And of course, I firmly believe that Forrester does pull it off and he, and he pulls it off because he breaks Wilcox and he shows us that, I mean, he has the line Margaret doesn't realize that this is what he needs. He needs to be broken. And mm. the idea is that we all need to be broken. And it's, it's being broken that is the catalyst for change. And so that was just brilliantly done. That it does, you know, in some, depending on how tender you are and open to change, obviously the more obstinate your heart is, the more radical it's going, it's going to take. But uh, so, yes, that, that shakes him. But then also the earlier conversation of Margaret finally, uh, gloriously saying, enough, I'm going to force you to connect this. You did the same thing as Helen. You have yeah. to make the connection. And how dare you hurt your wife when she is alive and then claim to be protecting her memory when she's dead. Right which was bam. I just, that was so wonderful. And she says, and I'm done protecting you. I can see now that protecting you from this was the worst thing that I could have done. Um, and of course she's right. She's right. This is one of my firmly held beliefs, right? That, um, when we protect each other from seeing the reality of our behavior, not, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying we have to necessarily go condemn them for life, but there are natural consequences to behavior, right? So like Mrs. Bash showing up, that's just, that's a consequence of something that happened. And when those consequences become apparent, that's an opportunity for us to repent. And so when we protect people from those consequences, we are in a, in a very real way taking from them their opportunity to repent. And I, and I feel like that was one of the big ideas going through the story that Margaret does not help Henry by protecting him from this. She just lets him go back into what later she calls the blind, that his repentance is just a blind and is therefore not true repentance. But it's, it, but it's when he finally has to face the reality that this is the reality. These are the consequences. And then of course, in conjunction to that, he, he sees his entire little family construct falling apart. I mean, if he, here he is taking the moral high road about the family name and honor and the protecting the house from having something bad happen. And, and then his son commits manslaughter in that house and ruins the family name. And, you know, all of the things that he was ready to accuse Helen of doing, his own son does. Uh, and he's forced to connect it because Margaret has forced him to. And so that ends up being the catalyst for his, for his wonderful change. Uh, so I was just cheering and cheering and cheering at, at the end, as well as sobbing. But that's a, that's another section. So that's my thoughts about the brokenness. I think it's a profound truth that we have to be broken to change. And sometimes, sometimes books will show us characters changing, but we don't get a sense of the brokenness that had to come first. So that was I really appreciated that. That's a profound truth. I wonder. I'm trying to think of examples of books where changes like that are more gradual 
like where the abruptness of it isn't just because of some one specific moment. I mean, I know it's not right. The things to build lead up to it and plant seeds and all that, but it seems like one sort of specific thing is driving his, his change. So do you see him as having repented by the end? Because that was the big question that we talked about a couple of times over the last few episodes. Angeline, you were saying you didn't feel like he was repenting. So do you feel like by the end he has done that? Yeah, I do. I do. I don't think he's taking the hypocritical high road anymore. I think he's connected. I I think he's a a much different man at the end of the book. Why? Go ahead. Go ahead, Tom. Do do you guys think that is Margaret the reason why? You mean like Helen says? Uh, what do you mean like Helen says? Well, at the end of the last page oh, of the book, it. Helen says, you know, says to Mark, you're the reason that everybody's happy now. And oh, Marvin yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She never expected to blow up anybody's life, but she blew up the Wilcox's life. Mm-hmm. Conquer, but, but, she uses. But had, is it, is it Margaret's? I read it as it's, it was Charles's manslaughter that kind of like, in Flannery, O'Con- in, in Flannery O'Connor's terms, like provides this moment of grace, right? It breaks him open. And Margaret can speak into that, but I took it more as it's the event of Charles kind of allows Margaret, allows him to hear Margaret's voice. That his ears are open so he can yeah. recognize what she's yeah. actually saying and like, right. see the truth of it. Yeah. As opposed to so the 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 moment of Charles being condemned, having to go to prison and all that, right? So as opposed to what, like, what's the alternative? As opposed to, as opposed to Margaret telling him off. Is that so? Do you disagree with that, Angelina? Would you say that the the or how would you respond to that? Are you guys talking about the same thing? Or are you talking past each other? No, I think we are. I think we're talking about the same thing. I'm, uh... I kind of saw it as a one-two punch, but I agree that her confronting him by himself would not have been enough. After she confronts him, she determines to leave him. And I think that's how things would have been if it had not been for Charles, what happens with Charles. But I I mean, I don't know what kind of terms to give it. I do feel like Margaret's confrontation of him does is the first blow, almost like in the Flannery O'Connor revelation story uh, where uh, Mary Grace hit Mrs. Turpin with the book. Like that's the first blow, but she doesn't really have the the epiphany until later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would agree. I do not think that this is a story about the redemptive power of a woman's love. I do not think that is the story. I don't think Margaret's love for him... That's why she leaves him. I think she she also has a revelation because remember she's been holding on to this secret desire that the secret belief that she could change him, she could she could open him up if she just kept loving him. And so I I think both of them hit rock bottom. I think she has her eyes open that her love is not enough, sufficient to change a man, and so she's ready to walk away and admit her mistake there. And then he has so she kind of hits you know her the the rug is pulled out from under her with that illusion and then Henry's illusion about his perfect family that falls apart. And then the two of them can, can come back together. Both of them having their illusion stripped from them. That's, I mean, that's how I read it. So I would agree with him. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think we can say Margaret changed him or saved him. She also needed to change. And Helen too. I mean, everybody changes, not everybody. Charles doesn't change. Tibby doesn't change, but our central group. Yeah. Yeah. 
do you okay what do you think david no i hear confusion in your voice i know i'm thinking um i'm thinking about this idea of margaret changing that him whether she stops thinking that she can because I didn't, I don't know well, that I instinctively came away thinking that she, she, like, why does she stay then? Well, she initially says she's going to leave him, but right. then everything changed. Well, again, he, he skips it, right? Forrester skips it. He skips it. He skips yeah. everything. It goes I know. From, I know. from Henry's broken to 14 months later. And we find out in her conversation with Helen working backwards that everything fell apart and Margaret picks up the pieces because that is what Margaret does. Margaret's life is heroic, Helen says, because she picks up the pieces and she makes a home. And that, by the way, is what made me sob hysterically because it was such a beautiful line and a profound truth mm-hmm. and, and a profound way to think about um, that. So, again, we can only speculate about what happens after he's broken because Forrester doesn't give us that. He doesn't give us that. And maybe, again, that's the point. Maybe if we saw Margaret picking up the pieces we would be tempted to think she saved them all. Right. And I mean, there's a sense in which she does, there's a sense in which she saves Helen, but it, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not that Victorian, the redemptive power of a woman's love, you know, the whole, I'll marry right. a rake and so, I'll reform my love. It's not that. I've been thinking a lot about the decisions that she makes throughout the book and whether she should have made them. Um. Because so rarely it seems like, well, there are certain instances where her decisions that she makes don't end up uh, meaning anything Um, or like don't end up having consequences, um, such as like her threat to leave him. So because it didn't, she didn't end up actually having to follow through with it. And so part of me wonders, like, so for example, should she have threatened to leave him? Should she have, you know, I mean, if she, so she made a, so we can, if we want to say for the sake of argument that she agreed that she um, made a bad decision to marry him, just for the sake of conversation, we want to say that. Should she have then, as a response to everything that happened, threatened to leave him? Well, I know my very firm opinion on this, and I feel like I'm going to have to defend it vigorously because it's going to be pushing back I think, is, against the, I'm, the assumptions I'm not, of it, It's not a leading question. <laughs> right. Oh, I know. It's just when I read it, I, I was already dreading this conversation. Yeah, I mean, we can't have a conversation about this section, without, I feel like, without talking about it. All right, um, I'll, I'm just, I'll jump right into it then, even okay. though I know that I will get a lot of pushback on this. <laughs> I cheered her. I cheered her when she said, I'm leaving you. You do not understand how profound that conversation was. I'm out. I cheered her. It was a glorious moment. And it is exactly what that man needed to hear to snap him out of his lethargy. Do you think it was a real threat? Oh, I absolutely think. I think think the whole, it all turns on affection. I think that was true. I think she plans to go into exile with Helen. She chooses her affection for Helen over her affection for Henry. Is that why uh, it was the right thing to do? Because she chose to support her sister? Or if nothing had happened with Helen and she had gradually just realized that Henry was the way he was, should should she have left him in, in such a situation? Like a five years down the road, none of this had happened and she realized, oh, 
Henry's just a jerk, and I really wish I hadn't done this. Should she have stayed with him then? Oh, no. You know my answer is going to be absolutely not. I mean, I'm a firm believer. Look, it's the same idea. She protected him from the situation with Mrs. Bass, with Jackie, right? And, and, and so it's the same thing here. It's her refusal to protect him from the consequences of his behavior any longer. And so she's saying to him, if this is how you're going to be, this is the consequence. As a result, he changes. And so I don't think we have to accept the world that Forster gives us, right? And so the world he gives us is the world in which what she did and the events that happened is the catalyst for Henry to try to finally have the illusions ripped from, from, his, from his eyes. And he wanted the little scandalous free existence. And of course, all of that is stripped from him first by his own son, then potentially losing his wife. And then of course, the sister-in-law who's fallen. So he gets, he gets the triple whammy there. I just don't know how much I want to say. <laughs> I have such strong opinions, but I also know the pushback I'm going to get again. Because I got pushed back on, on what I said in the previous chapter about her uh, standing up to him and siding with her sister. Because I, I'm, I'm aware that there's a lot of people who firmly believe that uh, a wife should uh, side with her husband 100% of the time, that it's her duty, that she must stay with him no matter what the circumstances. And I could not more fundamentally and philosophically and biblically disagree with all of that with my entire being so it's like <laughs> how much do you want me to yeah, rant I'm about not, this so i don't I'm i think not it's really... the single most dangerous idea floating around right now so yeah well i'm not really i'm not really trying to get into an argument about those concepts so much as even i mean you i'm so i am talking with, talk about i am talking about within the world of these characters in this you know this story um well you know i never thought she should have married him so i'm Right, and so that's why I prefaced it with that. Hit the road, Jack. That's why I prefaced it with the fact that we kind of accept that maybe she should have married him. Although in retrospect, then maybe she should have married him. You know, like (laughs) all because the things, all these things changed because she did. Uh, Tim, you answer the question now. I feel like you're on. You've got something on your tongue. What's hard, David, is that with I think within the world of the book, I think the answer is for me fairly easy. Yes. She should have absolutely done what she did. I think what, I don't know, I'm, I'm anticipating what some of our, I'm maybe anticipating what Angelina is anticipating is that some of our listeners, you know, have, we've got strong convictions about um, the relationship between the husband and wife in a Christian marriage. And I'm not calling this story a story of a Christian marriage by any means, but it seems to me like what's so prickly about the question is that um, we never just completely enter the life world of a book. We also bring in our own hard-fought convictions based on um, the things that we hold most dear about the faith and the things that we hold most dear about our marriages. And for me, that's the thing that makes the, the question so complicated because within the context of the book it's easy she did the right thing no doubt um yeah it's just more complicated because um what exactly does the bible teach about divorce what exactly does the bible teach about um 
you know, like right. And that's not, you know, I don't feel like we're here to loyalty to fiction, right? Right. Exactly, we're not because part of what part of what you have to address in that conversation, okay. And when I said I didn't want to get into it, it's not because I don't think I have a tenable and defensible position. I I obviously do think that, but because to to make the case, I would have to unpack a paradigm and you know it, it just it's it's such a it's a it's so many other things come into play like i'm i would have to explain the paradigm from which i'm operating under and, and what i think certain words mean and all of that kind of stuff so it would, it would just go so way out of the context of of this book so it, it's a it's a very difficult question to answer and i and i think a lot of people are going to answer it very differently but i agree with tim that there's no question within the context of the book that it is being portrayed as the right and good thing. Yeah. And that, that she is correct and brave and noble to make him face his own hypocrisy. And, and what, what she leaves him for is his unwillingness to face his own hypocrisy. That's, that's what, that's what she does, which I'm sure there are people who would think that doesn't matter. We're all hypocrites and you got to stay anyway, but that's another, that's another story. So, you know, one of the, this is a really lovely book, but I have some pretty significant problems with it. And one of them is, is the way he tells the story um, at certain times, because I think that he spends too much time judging his characters, like telling us as a narrator how to feel about what they're doing. Mm. Um, I actually think this would be probably a better play than a book better than a play than a novel because i think that where it really sings i mean the narrator at times is very interesting and like the like very thought-provoking but but where the where the book really sings where it really is moving is in the dialogue um and then to me when it stops to tell me what to think about the dialogue and to think about what the actors are doing the characters are doing it it's less powerful like it's less meaningful to me um and so in certain instances like telling us how to feel about uh like that tell it like for example stopping and telling us how brave she was and how she was standing up for all women Mm -hmm. is like i don't need to be told that to know that to feel that and Mm -hmm. i felt it less once he told me it um now i could be in the wrong on that i mean i could be alone in that at least among the three of us i'm sure there's other listeners who feel some something similar to that and and i'm perfectly willing to admit that this might be the uh that that i'm the the Victorian and Edwardian books are not necessarily like my favorite thing. So they might just be a kind of thing that doesn't speak to me in general. Um, But I wish that so many of these, that he had commented less on these decisions that people are making and let us feel the moments and feel the scenes longer because I, that because it feels like there's less drama there to me. Um, And that's why I say that like, if if it was a play, you let the dialogue sing and you can like have a moment I don't feel like he give he gives me a moment to to actually feel anything about it. I feel like intellectually I can jive with him, but that like emotionally it it doesn't it it didn't like I'm sure I'll think about it, I'm sure it'll linger, but the moments themselves end too quickly for me to feel a lot about it. Um, I feel like that's a comment you make about a lot of things we we read. Like that's you definitely are sensitive to that. I can think of many conversations where you've pointed out a line, like even just one sentence. Like I, you said, that, I remember about Pride and Prejudice. You took issue with Jane, and you were like, "That one line, I didn't need that one line. She should have left that one sentence out." Yeah, well, you're really sensitive to that. I don't I mean I don't know how I, I I track with what you're saying, and I guess intellectually oh, I agree, and yes. then yet. 
I know that I sobbed through the last part of this book. So I obviously had an intense emotional connection. Yeah, and, and I, and I, I, when I say that, I'm not saying that the way you felt was wrong. No, I'm I don't, I don't my, hear you saying that. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. No, like, I don't hear you saying and I also, I'm trying to, like, I'm, I was actually nodding my head with you. Like, yeah, yeah. He isn't let us feeling in the emotion. And I was like, what are you talking about, Angela? You sobbed through the last <laughs> part of this book. So. But then again, I'm very emotional. My emotions are all like, it doesn't take to push me over into sob. So I mean, maybe that's <laughs> making me cry may not be a great accomplishment. <laughs> um, I want to, can we, can we look like at- the person like long distance phone commercial? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's all right there. No, no, no. I don't, and I, I don't, and so again, I don't at all mean to suggest that your experience was any less, that, that my experience is any more meaningful or any less meaningful, no, I like didn't, many I didn't more true than yours. That. Let's go to the end of 43 because I, there's an interesting paragraph here. It's, it's the moment when he comes and tells her that he's broken because Charles is going to be charged for manslaughter. It's the end for him. She's just set on leaving and he changes the conversation quickly. Um, let's, let's actually just read. Um, Okay, let's start with, um, for me, it's like about a page before the chapter ends. It starts with the Great North Road. Well, actually, no, let's go back to the beginning yeah. of the conversation. Um, okay, let's start with she was determined not to spare him. Why don't I be the narrator, and then you be Henry, Tim, and Angelina, you be Margaret. How's it, can we do that? Such typecasting. Okay. All right, you want to be Henry? <laughs> I just felt like you might be able to identify with Margaret a little no, more. Than no, him. you don't. <laughs> can't speak robotically enough to be Henry. All right, I'll be okay. Margaret. Okay, so we're going to start with she was determined not to spare him. You see that? Yes. Okay, Tim, you got it? Yes, I, I, got I it. can find okay. it easily because I wrote in all caps next to that sentence, finally, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. So yeah, I know exactly Tim, where we are. What did you write there, Tim? Did you just draw a smiley face or like a sad face in the margin? <laughs> I drew... Angelina is going to mark her book up at this moment. That's what I wrote in my margins. No, I didn't. So predictable. <laughs> All right. She was determined not to spare him, for nothing new had happened as far as they were concerned. Her mood might never have, al- have altered from yesterday evening. He was standing a little outside Charles's gate and motioned the car to stop. When his wife got out, he said hoarsely, I prefer to discuss things with you inside. It will be more appropriate in the road, I'm afraid. Did you, did you get my message? What about? I'm going to Germany with my sister. I must tell you now that I shall make it my permanent home. Our talk last night was more important than you have realized. I am unable to forgive you and am leaving you. I am extremely tired. I have been walking about all the morning and wish to sit down. Certainly, if you wish, if you will consent to sit on the grass. The Great North Road should have been bordered all, all its length with, what was that word? How do you say that, by the way? I do not know. Glebe? Uh, we're gonna I'm going to go with Glebe. Henry's kind had filched most of it. She moved to the scrap opposite, wherein were the six hills. They sat down on the farther side so that they could not be seen by Charles or Dolly. Here are your keys, said Margaret. She tossed them towards him. They fell on the sunlit slope of grass, and he didn't pick them up. I have something to tell you. He said gently. She knew this superficial gentleness, this confession of hastiness that was only intended to enhance her admiration of the male. I don't want to hear it. My sister is going to be ill. My life is going to be with her now. We must manage to build up something. She and I and her child. Where, where are you going? 
Munich. We start after the inquest, if she is not too ill. After the inquest? Yes. Have you realized what the verdict at the inquest will be? Yes, heart disease. No, my dear. Manslaughter. Margaret drove her fingers through the grass. The hill beneath her moved as if it was alive. Manslaughter. Charles may go to prison. I dare not tell him I don't know what to do. What to do? I'm broken. I'm ended. No sudden warmth arose in her. She did not see that to break him was her only hope. She did not unfold the sufferer in her arms. But all through that day and the next, a new life began to move. Let's stop there for now. That's um, a good sentence. The ne- all that day and the next day, a new life began to move. That's really what a, like a conversion is like. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I w- I'm really... I was really intrigued in rereading it just now about the references to the grass um, because there's mo- there's multiple ones. Like she says, if you'll sit on the grass, we can sit down. And then they fell on, they, they fell on the sunlit slope of grass and he, and he did not pick them up. The keys, she throws the keys and they fall on the sunlit slope of grass. Even just like the way he's playing with light there, this the way he's setting the scene. It's very like, mm-hmm. this is, it feels this sort of thing is what I'm saying. Like these, these scenes, these moments where he kind of sets the stage, gives us these sort of, this sort of sensory stuff and then lets the scene unfold is when this book really is the richest to me. Um, like, cause you can see the light right on the, and the keys hitting them and him just not bending down to get them. Right. Um, and, and, and David, then, the complaints that you have, I mean, I even, I share those complaints and I think there's a reason why, what let me first say what I mean. The editorial comments by Forrester um, in the section that we read. So, oh gosh, the Great North Road should have been boarded up. Should have been boarded all its length with glebe. Henry's kind had filched most of it. Okay, okay, got it. Forrester is like, it's almost like he can't resist sometimes just saying like. Um, we know who's at fault here. And then a little bit later, ay, 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 ay. Oh, there was another There's, section. I, I really, I, okay. I don't want to say this too much, but I really, really, really hate the line. Um, <laughs> she knew this superficial gentleness, this confession of hastiness that was only yes. intended to enhance her admiration of the male. I think that's the worst line in the whole book, probably. I think it's terrible. Really? Yeah, and I think it's really put in a bad place. Okay, now that I haven't stated that too too, too forcefully. Um, no, because I know what he's doing. I don't need Forster to tell me. Like I am now, like once he starts telling me this, this is probably just me, but once he has to tell me this that directly, and then he has to do this whole thing where like it becomes, like she becomes this archetypal like feminist almost and like she begins to see him as this like no longer as a person and Forrester's no longer for that moment not seeing Henry as a person I'm done like I don't I don't want to like Mm. I can see I can feel what she's feeling without Forrester telling me this stuff about how she sees him and like and how he's being uh, how he's being manipulative and stuff I don't need to be told that we know that from the whole book and from the experiences that we've had with Henry for 350 pages or whatever it is um so if he if he just given us the moment or given us something about the scene or how they looked at each other or something like that, like there's metaphor there. I don't need it to be so direct. But again, that's 
that mm. you know, that's probably just me. But the, the moment's too dramatic for it for me. It's too dramatic to stop. Um, oh, it, is that is that the chief complaint? Is that it kind of disrupts that it well, disrupts the flow? I, I, well, I don't. Or is mean, that it that it's he's telling you how to feel? No, it's that it's he's telling me how to feel, and I already feel. Yeah, I already feel pretty strongly about it. But then once you start telling me, once you start identifying how I feel about it, I stop feeling it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, this might be Angelina's favorite line in the book, and if it is, then I'm not saying <laughs> she's wrong. I'm just saying I didn't like it, and I could be wrong. <laughs> uh, I did mark it as a passage I liked, but I mean. I hear you. I th- you and I are very different readers and very different people, but I affirm what you're feeling. It doesn't have that effect on me, but I totally understand why it would have that effect on you. I like to have emotions named and uh, uh, just like as a general rule, and it's kind of like a running joke with my friends because I will always name, <laughs> I will always name their secret hidden thing that they're but- feeling. And a half of my friends love that, and the other half want to go swimming, running away. So I, in- I, I, I know what category to put you in. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't mind. That. Okay, so I don't. I actually probably wouldn't mind that in a conversation. Like, so for me, it's the fact that we are in. We're, we're in a novel here. Like, we're in a specific art form, and that within the parameters of it, um, I think what he's doing is restricting the pretend, the the inherent, the power there of the of the moment he does seem and, to always want to comment on everything i and agree so what yeah. i'm wondering is i don't disagree that the emotions should be named but i'm wondering if they can be named in in more subtle ways um can they be named through more universal means um and i mean i don't mean like everybody understands the language but can they be named through metaphor can they be named uh, i think through you would image? have preferred a gesture there than his definitive statement against all of mankind well okay but Maybe, but also, what if we read it like this? So what if she says, here are your keys. She tosses them towards him. They fall on the sunlit slope of grass and he doesn't pick them up. And then it says, I have something to tell you. So it's clear there's this disconnect. She's, try- she's making a gesture by throwing the keys to him, right? And he doesn't respond to it. And so there's this moment, like this moment of tension. Like, is he angry? Does he not pick them up because he's angry or, or why not? And then it's, I have something to tell you. And he says it gently, right? So that's a, that's a nice... Mm-hmm. Like there's direction there, like we're getting the moment, mm-hmm. the mood. And then what if we don't have this next line that I don't like? And it just says, I don't want to hear it. She replies. Like, doesn't her mm-hmm. saying, I don't want to hear it at, right after this moment of tension where he tries to be gentle and then she is forceful and saying, I don't want to hear it. Doesn't that do everything in the moment that he's telling us to feel in that line there? Does that make sense? Yeah. It does make sense. I don't disagree with you. I don't, I think, I don't hate the line, but I also agree with you that if we took it out, I don't think that it weakens the scene. Okay. Yeah. That, so I, I do agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, so that was also definitely a far afield, but my point was. <laughs> no one, no one. No, but you're very, you're very sensitive to that kind of stuff. You've made these kind of comments so often. It's just really, it's interesting to me. I also understand you so much more as my editor now because when I make comments like that, you say things like, trust your readers, don't make the connections for them. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell me what I think. Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) Now I'm just going to start saying, I'm being Ian Forrester, don't (laughs) challenge me. (laughs) In in a case like that, when, you know, part of it as an editor, you you have to like think it, you can't, you got to think about the other people who are reading it and the author at the same time and it's a weird, weird moment. Um, 
Because I'm trying to be like, wait, how do I feel about this? And then how is someone else going to feel? And am I wrong to feel this way? And should someone else feel it? And is there enough information here? And is the sentence just confusing? And also, Angelina's a good writer, so I don't want to bother her. Like, what should I? And then, it, then I just spend like and days. She's super and sensitive, that. and she'll cry. <laughs> no, I don't think that actually. Um, you should think that. No, I don't think that in the negative way. <laughs> just, I, everyone should just always remember all the time. I'm gonna cry. <laughs> I, I don't think Angelina could cry if I say something mean, and therefore I don't care. It's more like. I she anyway. Well, this is we should probably talk it's about more this. Like one I'm on just one. gonna pass her the box of Kleenex when I say something mean. I'm prepared. <laughs> no, it is not an ask for forgiveness later thing. Um, but the grass thing was really interesting to me because, um, it talks about how she puts her hand in the grass at that exact moment. Yeah. When um, he says manslaughter, Margaret drove her fingers through the grass. The hill beneath her moved as if it was alive. Yeah, what and do you like, think that means? I was, that's what I was going to ask you guys, but there was something like this is, that's where like there's a gesture or a metaphor. He didn't tell us exactly what was going through her head. He gave us something to think about. Um, and like dr- he uses the word drove. She didn't say she brushed her fingers through the grass or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, no, that's a, very, that's a very active kind of, you know, forceful, intentional yeah. thing. And it's like, and when she does it, the implication of the metaphor is that when she drives her fingers through the grass, the hill moves beneath her. Like she, there's something in her action that causes it to move as if it were alive or to respond to her touch as if it were alive. Like a child, like you touch a child's head and they turn and look at you, right? And so I've been trying to figure out, is that what he's going for? Like, is, it, is, the, is the earth responding to Margaret's touch? Like it's sensitive to her touch or is oh, her touch causing it to come alive and, and like move? Like, is she generating life in her touch? And, and why does it come right after this moment where he's, where she, he, this manslaughter idea comes Well, up? she definitely has a connection to nature, which Henry, does. Does, not, which Henry does not. Right. And so, I mean, the, the most I got out of all of this grass stuff was her connection to nature and her needing to be grounded in that while she's having this conversation with him, you know, so almost as if, uh, well, I mean, to, gosh, all the ways that I think I can talk about this, I feel like I'll be opening up another can of worms. But when you're somebody who's highly imaginative and fanciful and lives in the world of your imagination, you have this feeling like you're always going to float off into the Neverland. And, um, and so you have this intense need to feel connected to nature, to feel grounded. And there was something about the conversation with him that I wondered if that's why she felt the need to be in the earth and in the grass and to touch it. And hmm. so and like she's, moves, she's looking for something. As if a, yeah. And it, and it does respond to her touch. Like it moves as if it's alive. Cause it is alive. Like it gives, it gives her something back in that moment. I mean, as like, almost like somebody holds your hand for comfort or something like it's yeah. stealing her up in this conversation somehow. Hmm. Do you, uh, Were you guys, uh, did you notice when, <laughs> Margaret drives up. Did it strike you as a little bit outstanding that Henry was outside? It jarred me a little bit. I was like, that man has never been outside. Because of his hay fever. Yeah. Because of, of his hay fever, yeah. Somebody else. Which, you know, the whole hay fever, though, that is an interesting metaphor. I mean, the outside makes him ill. Mm. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's not too. the outside guy. Yeah, yeah. And, he's just, and the houses, too, because they're damp. He's just... <laughs> can't find a place to be home so then there's this 
But but the thing is, like, when he says, so she's clearly responding to this manslaughter thing some way. Like you say, maybe she's looking for something steady or, or however we want to read that. And then it says, he repeats manslaughter, I'm broken, I'm ended. And then this, like, really startling, well, it's not, it's not surprising, but just really dramatic line, no sudden yeah. warmth arose in her. She did not see that to break him was her only hope. She did not unfold the sufferer in her arms, but all through that day and the next, a new life began to move. The no sudden warmth in her arose in her. I, I, I get, I like, I can follow what's happening there. Like but this next line is confusing to me. And I like it because it's confusing. She did not see that to break him was her only hope. What does that mean? Okay. Well, I can tell you how I, I read it. And then y'all can tell me that you think I'm crazy. This is how this is how I read it. The way that the scene is is drawing them together and he's being more and more gentle with her and more and more broken as he speaks to her and then finally makes really a startling admission. I'm broken, I'm ended. This is yeah. this is more vulnerability than we have seen in Henry at, at all in the story. So yeah. I was moved by his vulnerability here. Yeah. But it doesn't have the effect on her that it, it might. And so the way I read it was I'm actually the narrator intrigued that, saying, that as you as the reader who doesn't like Henry was moved by it. And you've I always was. been in Margaret's corner. You haven't been moved by him the whole book and now you are. I know. And she has not been moved, but now she isn't. I know. Yeah. It's no, really I, I, I agree. I felt for him in this moment and yeah. the whole, she, I would have hugged him. I mean, for all my tough talk, I would have broken down and hugged him. And I thought that's what she should have done. And I thought that was Forrester saying, if she had embraced him in that moment, he would have fully broken. But I also understand why she didn't do it, right? Because her earlier attempt to, quote unquote, comfort him when he was in a situation only made it worse. And so she's probably unsure what the right thing for her to do is in that moment. I'm a big softy. Some guy so, tells me I'm broken. You're going to get a hug. That's what happened. And we're both going to cry, but yeah. You know. Okay. So in, so in responding to him with um, uh, generosity and warmth, that would have caused him to just fully be broken, but he's not actually as broken as he says he is because she doesn't do that. Like it doesn't allow that full brokenness to happen. Is that what you're saying? Right. Well, well, for what the next paragraph says, now the new life began to move. I think he does get fully broken without her. And then we don't know what happens in the 14 months, but so would you, are you that gather- was like a missed epiphany moment. Like that was a missed moment between them. They, that could have been a moment of reconciliation, but he chooses not to show us the moment of reconciliation again. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're saying that when it says all through the day and the next, a new life began to move that, that, you know, that's Henry, inside Henry, right. Because it says then Henry's fortress gave way. So it's after the verdict that he falls apart completely. And in his brokenness, I love the last sentence, right? He could bear no one but his wife. He shambled up to Margaret afterwards and asked her to do what she could with him. So in his brokenness, he turns toward her. And so, I think that's what he would have done in that moment when he said to her, I'm broken, but she did not receive him turning toward her. So then if the, if he, if his fortress gives way after the conviction, Charles's imprisonment, then is the new life that begins to move in the, all through that day, is that, her, is that sort of the warmth, there, no warmth arose in her, but during that day, 
warmth did arise in her such that she was then able to respond to him when the fortress finally broke? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, she doesn't respond to him in the moment, but I think she is moved by it. Yeah. And so, like, the inquest ends up being the thing that forces her to stay there when she wants to leave. It's the thing that forces Helen to stay there when they want to leave. Legally, they have to stay and and testify in this inquest. And it's the same sort of universal forces outside of us that's been moving through the whole book, like the fact that Howard's in, all their stuff gets unpacked in Howard's in, despite what, you know, repeated telling him not to do it. And, and Helen saying, but it is our house, all our stuff's here. This is home. It is, it, it, it's home because we feel it's our home. It, you know, it's like the, the universe just gives them the house and gives them the home. And, and, and the same thing with the inquest, just like all of these huge forces at work outside of them as individuals, if that makes sense. It's almost, you know, destiny. It's, it's not quite that kind of book, but it feels like destiny has brought all this together. Tim, is that how you read the, those passages there? Is that how you read it? Or did you have a different perspective? I, I thought I read it very simply. She didn't hug him because she didn't know that he had to be broken, which is hard for me to believe, but it kind of sticks with her character, you know? I mean, like... What do you mean she didn't know that he had to be broken? The sentence is, no, no sudden, excuse me, no sudden warmth arose in her. She did not see that to break him was her only hope. She did not enfold the sufferer in, his, in her arms. It made me reflect back to when the um, affair was revealed with Mrs. Bast. It made me think, is the reason that Margaret didn't confront him then, is it because she didn't know that he had to get broken? She just, that's just not how she like, thinks of change and redemption. So are you saying that, so this line, she did not see that to break him was her only hope, is that she didn't see that earlier? That if she'd seen it earlier, she would have actually, she would have left earlier, but now she realizes, oh, he's broken. So now there's hope. No. Um, She doesn't respond to him breaking because she doesn't know that he has to break to change. See, that doesn't make sense. Well, no, uh, no I thought it made, no, I think sense. it made sense. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about how there's like uh, so many like subtle different differences in some of these perspectives and that that's, you know, like I said, it, it, there's things I dislike about this novel or, or not dislike, just that I have problems with, but it's also a really complex piece of work, piece of writing. And, you know, these, these lines that almost, like the paragraph could probably be there without that, but this one line opens up so much for us to talk about. Yeah. I mean, that's where yeah, one of the things that I'm thinking book, about as, as we look at this. Book. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I, didn't hear the, that, I didn't hear that last part, David. Say again. Yeah, I didn't hear that either. Oh, I just said that's one of the differences between a good or a great book and a mediocre book. You know, these, you can yeah. be one line that opens up so much to you. Yeah. That's why close reading makes it uh, pays off. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. One of, the that I'm, one of the things I'm thinking about as we, as we talk about this is, is grace and and what you know there's the idea that a heart has to be prepared for grace and um i don't actually think that margaret was offering henry grace the first time when she was looking to just 
clean up his mess. She might have thought that's what she was doing, but I don't think that's what she was really doing. But I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the parallel between Henry's brokenness and Helen's brokenness at the end, because um, I, I think that we see already broken Helen, right? She does, she's not, she does not excuse her sin mm-hmm. in the least, right? Mm-hmm. She keeps saying, Margaret tries to, and she's like, nope, nope. I, I knew what I was doing. It was me. He did. He wasn't him. It was me. I'm the one at fault. I tried to make it better. I'm going to go away. I'm going to bear the consequences of this. I'm ruined. Um, and then Margaret gives her all this grace, but she was already broken. And so she can receive the grace. And, but, but Henry, Henry doesn't receive his grace again until he's broken as well. It just took a lot for him to get there. Well, I mean, I suppose you could say it took a lot for Helen to get there too. I mean, goodness gracious, 1910, being pregnant out of wedlock, that's a thats a pretty big, my life is ruined moment. But that all happens off camera. So right. we don't get to see it. We, we get to see Henry on camera. Right. The break happens right in the middle of the stage. Yeah, that's the one big dramatic moment we actually got to see. <laughs> I was thinking while I was reading, Which, for me, the six things that happened in this book and it wouldn't feel like very much. <laughs> It's a 14-minute movie. <laughs> you know, I, I, this book, I mean, I really, having completed the book, I would recommend it strongly to mm-hmm. other people. You know, mm-hmm. I just think, I think it's, I think it's lovely. And the conclusion, really the second half of the book or the last third of the book is what changed it for me because, man, I was... I was laboring for the first half of the book. I would probably wouldn't have finished it if it wasn't been a, if it had not been a close reads podcast book. Because it was just like, where are we going? Where are we going? What is this book so about? So you're not mad at me for suggesting it anymore? Not at all. <laughs> no, I wasn't mad at you before. I knew you were taking a risk based on high praise, Wendell Berry. You know, mm-hmm. that's really high praise. If Wendell Berry like recommends the book, we ought to close read it or at least consider close reading it. Um, but I just thought, I just did not see what the attraction was. Now I really see it. If, if I have any complaints about the book, and again, I, I think it's really, really excellent. Um, man, I wish it found its feet quicker. I don't think that I, we learned about the characters. I, I appreciate that, but I don't think that we, it was such a leisurely stroll that, I almost, you know, I almost quit the stroll. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I wonder if you, if you would feel the same way if you reread it again, like knowing how it ends and all that kind of stuff. Like if you would notice things. I'm sure I wouldn't. Oh, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. I would appreciate it more and I would enjoy it more in the second read. Um, <laughs> but I don't know that that like saying, oh, you just got to read it twice is really oh, no, no, no. salvage the book for me. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't, I didn't mean to suggest that you were wrong again. I just, it's a curious thought. Like, would you, how do you, are you going to feel completely differently or just moderately differently when you reread a book again? Like that you felt like you labored through and then you get to the end. I bet a lot of people feel that way with some of the Russian books. Like they get to the end and it's lovely. And then, you know, you go back and reread it and you don't feel the same way you felt about it when you were laboring yeah. the first time. Yeah. <clears throat> or Dickens, except that nobody reads Dickens and doesn't labor through it. <laughs> I mean, it's the whole He's point. He's the anti David. We have slammed some Dickens on this show, boy. It is the whole point of Dickens. Life is hard, and my book should be the same. Um, <laughs> uh, 
No, actually, I, I okay, okay. secretly I kind of like Dickens. I don't, I don't want to forget to say this because I said it last week. So I have a theory about what's going on with the narrative structure of this book. Mm-hmm. How he just gives us these fragments and doesn't give us the whole narrative and doesn't let us get sucked in and keeps jumping around. Tell us. All right. When I read the line where Helen said, Margaret, can't you see? Can't you see that your life has been heroic? You have picked up all the pieces and you have made us a home. That's when it clicked in my mind that that's what the narrative structure of the book has been. He's just giving us the pieces and we, we are putting it together like Margaret has been putting the pieces together. Hmm. I think that is, I think that is a very plausible way to, to do it, to, to read the book. And we compared the book at the beginning, probably in our first close read, to an impressionist painting. You know, daubs of paint, daubs of paint, but it's the eye that backs up from a close viewing that can kind of put the whole painting together and make sense out of it. I think that's what we, we suspected he was doing something like that at the beginning. And I agree with you, Angelina, that line might be a little bit of a tip of the hand to let us see. Yeah, this was, in fact, the plan. I, I Again, my, my complaint, though, <laughs> just about it, like, he required so much, at least of this reader, so much patience in having that picture form. Um, I wish I'd had a little bit more of a clue about what the picture was going to be a little bit earlier on. He didn't even give it away on the first 10 pages, but the first 150. I don't feel like I knew what the book was about for 150 pages. I do. You know, he talks so much about, there's that line where Margaret tells Helen that Henry is not ill. He's eternally tired. He's worked very hard all his life and noticed nothing. Um, And those are the people who collapse when they do notice a thing. So there's this clear emphasis by Forrester on, you know, being patient, having your eyes open. Um, there's a lot of in here, you know, have you guys read about, you guys know William Carlos Williams very well? The poet? A little. Just a little. So his big, one of his big themes was you know, no ideas, but in things. Um, and that's why like, you know, that's the fa- his famous poem that everyone knows is the red, red wheelbarrow. And that's kind of what's going on with that poem. And um, it feels like I wrote that, I did that, that in the margins of this book, like four or five or, 10 times like this is Forrester saying no ideas but in things and like you have to notice like you have to keep your eyes open you have to see you have to be observant the world around us is means um so much more than it seems like on the surface and it's one of the ways that we can connect with each other um and I think maybe that's what he's doing in that first part there he's like telling us slow down stop trying to move forward and notice things um, I, Angelina, did, did you, I'm trying to remember, did you have, did you feel like the first bits was a slog at all? Or were you all in all the way? I don't know. I was, in, I was crushing hard first chapter. I was, That's yeah, right. you, were ready to, you were ready to get married. I am still ready to <laughs> dig up his corpse, put a ring on it. Yeah. I'm, but I, if I'm, I'm I recall, you wavered. Oh, you well, wavered. No, I got mad. Well, I got mad when I felt like Margaret was being an idiot. So yes. <laughs> 
So I thought, doctor, you wavered, I thought you wavered before that also. No, there was, a, you're right. There was like a, uh, it was one little section of five chapters where he kind of lost the thread for me. I think it was the second set of five chapters, but then yeah. picked it up again. But yeah, but, 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 but I forgot my other point about the narrative structure, which was the only connect. And so same thing. I think he's forcing us to make all the big connections in the book. He's not making them for us, which is ironic since David thinks he keeps trying to tell us what to feel. <laughs> Well, that's, I just feel like there's a, like, there's a, um, like, it lacks that sort of, you know, Tabar T.S. Eliot's idea of the objective correlative. Like, he's just, he's got his mission and he sets out to do it and he does it pretty well, but at times he just loses focus on what he's actually trying to do and it's distracting. Um, it is preachy. I agree with you. I don't, I'm not bothered by it. Yeah. And again, I, I'm not, I'm perfectly willing to say that it, like, I should be less bothered by it. <laughs> You know, um, and no, you know, you're not going to, a writer's not going to please everybody all the time with exactly everything. I still like the book a lot. Like I said, I, you know, so we can't just be, we can't heap only praise on it for the last episode. Someone's got to be. <laughs> you know, uh, I wonder if some of the preachiness comes from a sense that who knows, I'm not, I don't want to like overly biographize this book, but I wonder if Forrester he knows sociologically what he's up against to write a book like True. this. And I wonder if he, you know, if he was writing this book today, I think that he would not, he would not need to editorialize so much because so How many of the things that he was, so, yeah. I read a little critical after I finished the book, I read a short critical essay about it. And apparently it was, the most discussed book among the elites when it came out for quite a while. It made quite a dent in elite society of um, England. I guess London specifically. How it sold, I even have, I have numbers of how it sold. Do you care to hear them? Sure. Yeah, sure. Pub published in October 1910, 2,500 copies, followed by 1,000, 3,000, 2,500, and 1,000. Hmm. Pretty good for back then. All right, so it doesn't sound like it was banned and people were calling for his head. But, it, <laughs> you know, again, I, th I, I agree with Tim. I think as modern readers, I mean— None of us are fans of adultery, and none of us think having a child out of wedlock is your ideal situation. But <laughs> neither one of those things destroys a person's life in 2018. And mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the things that he's pressing against, we don't press against. Mm -hmm. I mean, our big social issue is how do we keep so many babies being born out of marriage, right? That's our mm -hmm. pressing issue, not how do we utterly destroy this one person who had a baby. Mm. Yeah. How do we make sure she doesn't take our entire family down with her is not, that's not an issue that we're struggling with right now. Right. Right. You know, we, we are struggling, you know, he, he's at line towards the end or this Helen and Margaret are talking and she, Mar, I think Margaret says to Helen, it looks like this craze for motion has only set in during the last hundred years. It may be followed by civilization that won't be a movement because it will rest on the earth. All the signs are against it now, but I can't help, I can't help hoping. And very early in the morning in the garden, I feel that our house is the future as well as the past. They turned and looked at it. Their own memories colored it now, for Helen's child had been born in the central room of the nine. And then, and then he, he calls her, um, Paul opens the door, and they all go in, and he passes on the house to her. 
Um, mm -hmm. And right before that, well, um, forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I, I, that, they're talking about how, well, that, okay, what I was going to say is that is a perspective. The, um, this craze for motion is something that we can understand now. Mm -hmm. And it's something that you have to fight against. The people who are have this craze for motion are not people who notice things, right? Um, mm. and so that is a thing that we like, and that that's probably one of the things that appeals to Wendell Berry about it, right? Um, this craze for motion that had set in a hundred during the hundred years before this book is written, now a hundred years on, a hundred years later, has only sped up. So she's hoping that the civilization won't be a movement anymore because we'll rest on the earth, but we're not closer to a civilization now that is not a movement and is more resting in the earth than they were in 1910. Um, she's got hope. Um, and maybe we should too, but you know, we're not closer to that in 2018 than they were in 1908, 1910 um, when he was writing this. So yeah. that's something that definitely can be, you know, I think is sort of, still appealing and that's where i think you know there's a reason why certain things in this book like the connection with nature and things like that have some have been things that we've come back to so much and romanticism and things like that those themes have come back to us because they're so meaningful to us they, they come up in every episode basically yeah the they, do. We're starting they do for. Mm -hmm. do we want to talk for a minute about leonard bass because i I'm yeah, having gonna, a hard time yes. wrapping my head around his character and what happens to him. And that, that was going to be I'm my like last question. I'm awake at night trying to figure out what I think of him and what happened to him. So here's my proposal. We're going to get questions about that. So I propose that we, we can either talk about it for a few minutes now, or I think we could give it more time next episode if we take the questions okay, sure, about yeah. it and dive in there. Because I, I knew we probably were going to go off on this ending part, and but the Leonard thing is so mysterious and so interesting that we do need to talk about it. Yeah. So, so should we spend five minutes now? Yeah. No, we can. No, we can. We can wait. You're right. I forgot we yeah. were doing an episode. That works. Okay. I so vote to wait also. So the next week, let's we're going to answer some questions and we're going to prioritize discussions about Leonard in particular. Um, so if you have questions about that section, send them. And if not, you know, I'll have questions. Angelina will have thoughts. Tim will have thoughts. We'll, we'll start with that. We'll start with Leonard next week and then we'll jump to other questions. So if you, we will post a thread on the close reads Facebook page and we will, uh, on that thread, you can leave your questions. If you're not on Facebook, but you are a Patreon supporter, then you can just send me a message or send, send the close reads a message on Patreon with your question and we'll get to as many as we can next week and then the week after that we'll we'll start true grit so you have a couple of weeks to get going on that uh now that we're finished with with howard's end hey david angelina what do you guys think about doing we've talked about doing a patreon exclusive on the movie yeah i um well let's yeah i think we should do that if there's interest in it um have you guys watched the movie not a since long it came time out ago. in 1992. Yeah, I don't remember anything about it, but I just want to, it's got Anthony Hopkins in it. I think Anthony Hopkins plays Mr. Wilcox. And Emma Thompson. Yes, I think that's right. And Emma Thompson. And Helena, Bonham, yeah. Carter. And Helena Bonham Carter. Young Helena. You know, it'll just make you think of Bella, the uh, uh, Harry Potter. She's the Harry Potter. No. Yeah, Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. yeah, she, yeah, make yeah. you think of that. Um, Helena's, Helena's uh, Bellatrix. <laughs> Um, it could work, <laughs> but we did finally get the question answered of what does the elm tree represents. And they finally told us that Mrs. Wilcox is the house and she is the tree and she is the thing watching over all of them. So we finally got the definitive answer to that. Hmm. 
Well, no need to ask that question then for next week. <laughs> <laughs> I, for one, appreciate when Forrester spells it out. By the way, <laughs> no, I don't. So I actually don't mind when connections are made between like themes, people, and metaphors. But like in specific moments, I know what you're saying. I'm just that. teasing you. Oh, I know. I like I how know. riled up you get whenever anybody tries to tell you how to feel. <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> this may be something true of me in general in my life, and I maybe something I should probably be working on. I don't know. <laughs> you shouldn't feel that way, David. Wait, hold on. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean oh, that. I'm hanging you up. Just ruined the um, emotion of that scene. I'm yeah, not feeling I, it now. <laughs> I was <laughs> until you said that, Tim. I was reflecting. I was being contemplative. I was being self-aware, and now I'm just angry, and I'm gonna walk oh, away. I crushed it. I crushed it. You did not see that to break him was his only chance. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, anyway, um, now I'm going to leave um, and contemplate all my... Uh, yeah, now you can sort through all the hate mail I'm going to yeah. get because I said, tell him I'm leaving you. <laughs> Just for the record, I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to see it transformed Henry. She seems happy at the end. I still wouldn't be married to him, but, you know, whatever. That, and that actually, okay, I, I do want that to come up next week because I we didn't even talk about the final, final pages. And that is something I do have some questions for you about that. So if no one else has questions, I at least have questions. Great. Um, all right. That's it. Uh, thanks to the Honors College at Belmont Abbey for sponsoring uh, throughout the month of, month of February. To learn more about that, you can head over to bac.edu slash honors. Great program. And definitely hope you will check that out. If you have any questions about Belmont Abbey, I'm sure you can ask Angelina and she will sing their praises. Tim, Angelina, any final thoughts before we depart? Just be kind with the hate mail. <laughs> I already wanted to delete this episode. <laughs> Don't send hate mail. That's a, If you're sending hate mail, then Angelina, we're going to close read your hate mail on the air. I'm just going to stay on the social media until this blows over. All... I don't know what hate mail you would get, Angelina, but whatever hate mail might be directed at you, I have your back. Okay. Because like, awesome. what you said, I, I can't, I'm trying to think of what you said that might have been in some way objectionable. And I, anyway. Okay, I would just forward all of them to you and say, Yeah, just forward it to me. Tear stained screenshots. Yeah. I will send it to you. <laughs> And I will respond on behalf of Angelina Stanford. Hi, yes. Tim McIntosh. Please respect her privacy in this moment as she seeks therapy. <laughs> right. I, I'm the one that was critical. I'm probably going to really receive more hate mail from people who like the book, I, even though I didn't see the say the book was bad. But you know, I just feel like it's coming. Maybe the point is you should we should never say anything that could, anybody could have any disagreement with that could ever cause any dissension or that could ever make anybody want to send you a message that's disagree. That, uh, we should uh, probably not discuss art then. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should start talking about like, um, nope. Can't think of anything that would be just universal. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm going to say sports, <laughs> Dr. Seuss, parenting. I, I can't think of anything. No, those are all hot button issues. <laughs> yeah. Sports, Dr. Seuss. And parenting this is about to get burned down in a March Madness riot. Okay. I did not know what I was in for moving to North Carolina. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's over here. Tim, are you ready? Tim, you ready for March Madness? I'm ready. I'm ready, meaning I don't know anything about what has happened. I'm as ready. Uh, yeah. It's oh, by the much. way, I do have an announcement to make that I've been meaning to, to tell, tell everyone. We are going to have another literature bracket. Uh, 
um, a literary oh, like 32 to We're going to do that in March, probably middle of March, leading us early April. Here's going to be the topic. You ready for it? Exciting. Literary heroines. Ooh. Ooh. Do not put Anna Green Gables even on that chart, David. We cannot have a repeat. <laughs> I knew She's that. at one seed. I knew that would be she the is first a one seed. I'm feeling worried now. <laughs> yeah, Elizabeth Bennett versus. I'm just saying it right now. If Anne of Green Gables comes, I don't know. She if she wins the bracket, something's gonna happen. I, I'm just, so, I don't know. What I can't even tell you how excited I am for this. The controversy, the debate, <laughs> everybody arguing on the yeah. internet about their. No, this is gonna be so fun. I'm so excited. There's there's <laughs> nothing better than people arguing on social media and on the internet about their favorite literary female characters. There's just nothing like it. Male characters doesn't even compare. It doesn't compare. It's, it's going to be awesome. I'm so excited. Um, I'm going to make the matchups as controversial as possible just so we can, so everyone can be upset. Of course you are. First round, Elizabeth Bennett versus Jane Eyre. You're just going to go for the throne, aren't you? Oh, that's, that's not even close. That, that's, a, that's, not even, that's not even a discussion. But no, I won't make that. I won't make that matchup. But that, like, I, who would, who, uh, uh, I vote on that one. <laughs> well, I, I know who I would vote for, but we got some intense people. Okay. Yeah, be quiet. There's some, I feel like I should not say the people I want because then, you know, that gets me in trouble. Well, Go okay. Of green we'll, <laughs> once it's come, we'll do, we'll do a, um, Okay, I've got some ideas for some some pot, some close reads content to go with this bracket. So just everybody be on the lookout for that. It'll be 32 mat, 16 matchups of 32 characters and then we'll narrow it down to the final one. And I'm, we'll do some giveaway stuff. We're going to do some social media, some fun social media stuff, some tie into the podcast content. So I'm excited about this. Um expect that to launch probably mid-March. Um so Guess that's that's it. gonna really be fun. That's gonna be fun. I'm having a heart attack over here because I'm so sensitive, but I'm, I think it's gonna be fun for some people. It'll be fun. <laughs> no, I'm sure that everyone will band behind you and send whoever you want. See, there's just too many. You have to, you're a fan of too many literary heroines. So I know. I'm sitting here thinking you're asking me to choose between my children, and I don't know. <laughs> it's impossible. No, that would definitely be an interesting competition as well. Um, for with that, you're a troublemaker, David Kern. <laughs> For for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time here on Close Reads. Mm-hmm.